the second record, Back to Back, was definitely overall more commercial, I would say, and funkier, uh, yeah. a little less jazz, a little more funk. A really right. strong record, though. I, I was very impressed with that album. Well, we had a, a ball doing that. By then, like, we had tasted uh, the sweet smell of success as far as record sales, so far beyond which we had ever imagined. I remember Clark, uh, 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 Clive looking at me in the eye and said, Randy, think big. You know, that was a, a repressive statement. Because in my own mind, you know, I figured the... Uh, first record would sell usually jazz records sold like 5,000 records I was kind of doing it as a hobby because we were all busy in the studios we were the classic studio band Clive was always trying to get us back on the road but we were we didn't want to leave town you know so we did sometimes on weekends uh, probably would have kept it going but uh, in answer to your question the second record I really wanted to number one I didn't have nine tunes again but I wanted to involve the band because they had contributed so much. We were all best friends, you know, it was really a family. And the idea was to really make it the Brecker Brothers Band, which I think it says on the on the cover, actually. And we just had a ball collaborating on a lot of the tunes we had. Now, with the success of that record, we had a nice budget so we could afford to kind of jam in the studio. Uh, I remember being at a so-called disco one night and Bette Midler who's a, a friend back then I'd played on her records and we were looking for a singer to sing on some of the stuff and and, and, I, uh, and I asked her if, uh, I was telling her what was happening with our career and she said well you know there's this guy he worked on uh, 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 I can't think of the guy's name now but it'll come to be a uh, fame uh, David uh, Bowie yeah, so there's this guy, his name's Luther Vandross. He's a great singer, and he's a local guy. He, has a, a, he does a background vocals. He's a great vocal arranger. Why don't you try him? And so sure enough, we called up. We got She gave us Luther's number, and he came over in my brother's loft, and we played him some stuff. And he uh, helped us with the whole record. Who knew, you know, years later, it was not that long after. It was a good three or four Years later, that became the smashing, smash, smashing success he was. But he was just man, what a genius of a producer. He was in the studio a lot, just kind of helping us. And he would just think of one idea after another. The singing, the the arrangements, the vocal arrangements on that record are great. If you listen closely, there's a tune called uh, "If You Want a Boogie, Forget It," and the, all the nuances behind the uh, the 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 vocalizing were all his ideas he was just fantastic and there was another tune that Grolnick wrote called uh, what can a miracle do that's on that record and don had a melody and the changes but he did, couldn't think of the words and luther said well give it to me uh, i'll come back with something and overnight he rewrote the whole, oh just late like we got out of the studio two or three in the morning Next afternoon, he comes in, has the whole thing rewritten, all the lyrics. Will sang lead on it, and called What Can a Miracle Do? Luther was just, I, I can't say enough about what an amazing genius he was. So we stayed uh, working with him for years after that, us playing on his records then. He wasn't playing on our records. What a vocal genius, though.
Well, um, you know, some things popped in my head listening to certain tracks, and I don't know if it rings true with you, but on a track like, um, well, if you want a boogie, which you mentioned, yeah. really to me heard a little like, to me it was like a little P-Funk meet, meeting Frank Zappa on that. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, Grease piece, uh, sort of like Cool in the Gang kind of horns from back then. That's yeah. the real funky Cool in the Gang, not the later pop Cool in the Gang. Yeah. Um, and uh, even on uh, Dig a Little Deeper, kind of like a Brothers Johnson, Quincy Jones kind of production feel to it a little bit. And uh, there's just so many familiar but good R&B and funk influences that just course through this whole record. Well, we were listening a lot and everybody was playing on a lot of records. And uh, uh, so all those influences, I can't say that they were actively, that's what we were thinking of at the time, but uh, all those influences were in there. And we played on a lot of those different records, even though we didn't know what we were playing on, like I said, half the time. But my main, uh, that record was really a lot of fun to do. A lot of the stuff was jammed up. I, I had a couple tunes. It's funny, I brought in some tunes, kind of half finished. And the guys liked some of it, but they didn't like other parts. So we would just throw away certain parts and just keep this. And you mentioned one of the tunes that became known as Grease Piece, I think. Uh, it was like a germ of an idea I had, and they took it and we jammed up some parts. It was so much fun to do that with Sanborn and this rhythm section. We just had a real affinity to do it. It's, it's, you have to have the right people on every instrument to do that or nothing happens yeah i noticed too on that one the production is credited to the whole band whereas the first one was you so yeah. i'm thinking it was more democratic process or something on yeah that well yeah well that you know i just went with it you know i number one i'm first one to admit i didn't have the material on a level that i did for the first one because I, uh, I had been working on the first one for a couple of years uh, next thing you know we're real busy, and every year we have to come up with a record, so it was harder to come up with uh, stuff. So each record was a little different. The third one, maybe I don't had some good stuff on it, but not as it wasn't as consistent as the, the second one. I think you're right. When I listen to that one, I always have a great time re-listening to that stuff. So many good memories about that. Yeah, yeah. The third one definitely had more of a disco uh, influence. Yeah, by then I think we were a little too far. I'll tell you the story behind that one too. Uh, uh, we were too desperate to get in on a on the hit. My mother, I had I had written one disco tune. My mother wrote the words. I didn't like the tune that much, but she said, "Well, she uh, came up with finger licking good." That uh, is on the third record, which is called "Don't Stop the Music," and we uh, Mike had the idea to call uh, to to uh, have a producer. And he had worked for a guy named Jack Richardson, very nice guy from Canada. And uh, we we flew the idea by Clive, who said, well, I, I wouldn't think of him for you, but he's a serious gentleman and a serious uh, man, so let's try it. Mike had worked with Jack on a couple things. And he was great, but he was also kind of in it to get some of his people down from Canada to record with us. And he was trying to sell us tunes he owned publishing too. So that got a little 
screwy on that record. I think uh, we didn't really need horn players from Canada to come to New York. We didn't need a an arranger from Canada. So there's some things on that record that really we didn't have too much to do with. It just kind of got out of our hands, so to speak. But there's some nice stuff. I think if I'm not wrong, Mike had written Funky C, Funky Do for that record. And there's a couple of my tunes that came out good, but some of it is a little too disco-y and just, I don't know, I'm not that happy with the third record. <laughs> you had str strings on there even. Yeah, I don't think that yeah, was, I think that was a Jack Richardson idea. And like I said, he was a very nice man. I ended up working for him quite a bit. He would fly us up to uh, Toronto until he passed away, sadly, uh, uh, several years ago. Uh, uh, and was a great, great guy, but he just really, maybe Clive was right. He wasn't the right guy for us at that time. Uh, uh, but it's all in the memory bank now. Next record we did was uh, a good one, though. That was uh, that, that, well, the Funky C Funky Do was that uh, some Bob James influence on that one? Did you say? Well, that's hard to say because it was one of Mike's earlier tunes. Uh, I think Bob we were working for quite a bit. You know, I played on on all the taxi cuts and the theme, and Mike was playing for with Bob, and we were playing with him. Live, so a lot of the influences are uh, subconscious. You know what I mean? I wouldn't have thought of that myself, and I don't think Mike was thinking Bob James. He just was trying to write. He always thought that he wasn't talented in the writing division, and we'd have long talks. Uh, he thought I was had more inclination to write, and more talent, uh, what have you. And I would counsel him about, you know, it's it's not that I just sit at the piano more than you do because you're working on your instrument while I'm when I get home from doing sessions I, I don't want to play the trumpet I can't I have to rest my chops your saxophone player you can play for hours so I spend more time at the keyboard just working on music if you did that too as a, a composer don't think of uh, don't waste for inspiration it's part of the craft of being a composer you'll see you're going to be a great composer in your own right. And he uh, eventually, man, he grew in leaps and bounds. And that, I think, was his first really uh, successful tune as a, as a writer. And notice I don't play on it that much. When he would come up with, I was good at writing for him and the horn section. He wasn't that great writing for me. So uh, a lot of the times on his tunes, I had kind of a, a background position that's one tune for instance i barely play on it in fact i might not play on it at all but it's a it's a wonderful tune i have a tape of him whistling it he was looking for a uh, a lyricist and uh chris rogers who is barry rogers son uh gave me a mp3 of mike going over to chris's mother's apartment and playing the tune on a piano and whistling the melody of funky see funky do up i don't know how he did it that high two octaves up perfect whistling intonation like uh anyone you've ever heard just perfect like uh, uh i can't think of the name right now but uh that was a big move for him and then eventually he just went on to write some uh 
amazing songs that I couldn't even, how did he think of that? How, especially when he went out on his own solo career. You know, he was really could think of things on the instrument. It was married to the saxophone, like uh, that uh, Crescent City tune where using all the octaves, uh, I forget the title of that tune, the New Orleans influence. Uh, some of his tunes were just magnificent. Of course, uh, beside Funky See, Funky Do, we always play Strap Hanging quite a bit, still alive. Uh, we sometimes had to beg Mike to play his tunes. He didn't like Strap Hanging. He thought part of it was corny. I disagree. Uh, I'd say, no, we're playing it because people love it, Mike. You know, he'd say, oh, don't play that tune. Don't play that. <laughs> Another tune, he, we had a, his first tune was great on, uh, was called uh, Night Flight. But uh, he realized after he wrote it, that's on uh, on the second record, uh, back to back. The first tune, Babo do be da, the same notes as Tony Williams' tune, Vashkar. Like I said, completely unconscious and a completely other feeling. You would not, no one ever would dissociate the tune. But when he discovered that, we were not allowed to play that tune anymore live because he was afraid people would. have accuse him of stealing those first four notes which was completely in his own head but he was a, he ended up being a wonderful composer boy i marvel at the stuff he wrote i was barely could keep up with him i, f I felt like after uh, don't stop the music that you guys i don't know if it was conscious or not but tried to move very far away from that when you did the uh, heavy metal bebop uh, yeah. only one studio track but the live stuff was killer and um, East River, I really like that tune, too. So. Oh, that was great. Well, the story behind that whole record was we that was really, the whole record was almost an afterthought. We had done the week with Frank Zappa, whatever year that was. That's just recently released uh, live in New York, I think it's called. Strangely enough, I've really never heard that. We played a, a week live in New York with, with uh, Zappa. It was a Saturday night live. Uh, horn section and my friend Alan Rubin was actually in the Saturday Night Live horn section but somehow didn't want to do the gig maybe didn't pay enough or I don't know why I didn't want to do it so they called me Mike was in the Saturday Night Live band that at that time and uh, Bozio was the drummer in the band and just man just great he would leap off a second story thing and jump onto the drums no shirt and just play his ass off the whole band was fantastic and he had some time off, and we had a tour coming up where we needed a drummer, so we asked Bozio to do the tour, and we had a new bass player. His name was Neil Jason, and a new guitar player, Barry Finnerty, who we had known for a long time. And the tour ended up, the band sounded so great, we said, man, we got to record this, which we did. We recorded a, a couple nights at a place called My Father's Place in uh, Roslyn, New York, and Neil, our bass player, had the, uh, a tune that he wanted to record called East River. And uh, knowing Clive, the, to get him to release the live stuff once again, we didn't even have to ask. We knew we needed to have a single on this one, or at least make some attempt to sell the record. And Neil was a pretty experienced studio guy by then, and he knew exactly what he wanted. And we spent hours, days on that tune, you know, with him at the helm and uh, uh, his partner's co-writer who was, boy, I can't remember his last, last name, but his, uh, his, 
his uh, professional moniker was Cash Monet, M-O-N-E-T. We knew him as Ralphie from Brooklyn. Uh, but they 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 put that tune together, and we we double tracked, triple tracked, you know, everything was quadruple tracked. Neil really knew what he wanted, and that tune did well in Europe. It became a hit in the UK. But, I thought it should have been a big hit here. Yeah, it's still, yeah, I agree. It it still kind of holds up. I love listening to that tune. And when we have Neil in the band, we still go out as Record Brothers band. Uh, reunion every now and then we save it for special occasions sometimes we have neil in the band who's still playing great he's out with brian furry now and we do east river closing the set and it's always man it just slams the audience and uh, when will's in the band we do uh uh we do uh you want a boogie forget it or sneaking up so it's a lot of fun when we get the uh, guys together some guys from the 90s when we re uh, formulated uh, George Whitty. So we we still get out and play that music every now and then. How that concept come to you for you know calling it heavy metal bebop and also that uh, amusing cover that you guys did. Uh, well, I have to say the heavy metal bebop. I think that was my idea. Somehow that's what I that re, it, it, I think it was a good way to describe the music. Uh, us being. Really, be everyone in the band, even Bozio. You know, I first met him when I first heard him play. Was a jazz drummer. He played like Tony Williams. I heard him as a youngster when I was playing with Horace Silver in San Francisco, way before all the Zap. You know, his his uh, Missing Persons and Zappa stuff. He was great jazz drummer. Everyone was coming out of bebop. Neil too. Me and Mike and Barry was, of course, great bebop jazz guitarist and also was with the Crusaders on Street Life, et cetera, et cetera, recorded with Miles. So it just seemed natural to call it heavy metal bebop. And uh, the cover, it was a strange thing because that was the art department's, they got the bebop thing kind of right but the heavy metal they didn't know what to do with so they dressed up my brother poor guy in that space suit which was really hot with a head the, you know the head thing on so he was suffering through that that uh that long uh, arduous uh photo process so that's the story behind the cover but and looking back on it you know it's, uh, it has a charm of its own i suppose yeah yeah um so you took a little longer for the next record, I think. And actually, it was almost like three years between full studio albums. So is it just you guys were so busy with other projects, or, or did life intercede some kind of way? Yeah, I think it was a, it was all of the above. You know, we got, we're really busy. We were getting older. Uh, I was, uh, it was just, yeah, life started getting in the way. Uh, where I started to write for other people, and it was harder to get material together. I don't recall it being that long, three years, but the fifth record was uh, George Duke and was involved, which was a great idea, uh, Dayton. And I think we also had, uh, come to think of it, some disagreements with the record company, you know, it's happened. So that was the why we called it Dayton. We kind of patched up our differences they we didn't think they were paying us what they should and i think that that was part of it uh, was some things we had to iron out but the, also that mike uh, 
I like that record, though, too. There's some real good Michael Brecker compositions on that. And George was a joy to work with. He was uh, just an expert producer. Tommy Vicari, wonderful engineer from L.A., was along. And I have to re-listen to that. I haven't heard that one in a long time. But George came up with good ideas. And we had the nucleus of some good tunes, both Mike and I, on that one. I think uh, that don't get funny with my money. I started started doing my warbleizing, and uh, we had we had fun doing that. I was at uh, Electric Lady Studio in uh, the Village, as was the second record. And you got uh, Marcus Miller into the mix. Oh, yeah, well, he was a young. 17-year-old kid at the time, Will is so busy, and Neil got really busy in the studios doing jingles and writing, and Marcus burst upon the scene by then. Uh, it's, you know, this all comes back to me as I connect one thing to another. We had our club, 7th Avenue South, open by then, and we were meeting a lot of younger musicians. Marcus had a great band of teenagers called the Jamaica Boys, uh, and... Uh, we Lunch snapped him up. Yeah. And uh, he sounded great on the on that record and still plays great. So has kept his career going like no one else. So it was fun to to see him uh, in his uh, as a seventeen or eighteen year old keeping up and really leaving us in the dust. Of course he went on to produce Miles and has done so much as a player and composer and uh, and uh, uh arranger and producer he learned a lot from uh, i must say also he, he learned a lot from uh uh, uh luther vandross they worked together and i see the similarities in their uh producing capabilities when i do work for marcus and see him produce he's just instant okay that doesn't work try this okay that doesn't work we'll try this okay that works keep that try this they're really great at it and George Duke continuing the uh, Bozio Zappa thread. Yeah, yeah. So I hadn't really thought of that, but yeah, he was a big part. He came earlier or later, I forget now, but I think he was earlier. I, I, you would probably know. But the Zappa thread still is pretty important in music, that's for sure. He had some great players in his band and wrote some really great stuff. Wish I had played with him more. It was only that week. People asked me all the time. And it was only one week, and I saw him about a month later in a hotel lobby, Zappa with his bodyguard, and he already forgot who I was. I went up to say hello. He had no idea who I was. <laughs> <laughs> you did the one more record in that initial Brecker Brothers run, which you had already mentioned, the uh, strap hanging uh, cut. Yeah. Um, so... Were you happy with that record, and, and, and why did you guys really take a bench? It was like an 11 or 12-year yeah. break. Well, yeah, I was happy. We Finally, the idea behind that record was let's just do it. Our, our, we had uh, some pretty good tunes together. We trusted ourselves as producers, and we've been playing with this guys. You know, there's a lot of different, some different guys on the band, but we were pretty confident we could do a pretty good record on our own without it producers and the engineer helped a lot frank filippetti uh at that studio and we just went in and did it it was a little more live than a lot of the uh, other records we had done there was some overdubbing but we really tried to uh to to play as live as much as we could 
on that. And we were about ready for a break. That's the thing. We had been playing together. Uh, not only the Brecker Brothers records, six records. Imagine all the thousands of studio records, but we had played together in Dreams. Uh, it's in the 70s. We played together for a year with Horace Silver, all the Billy Cobham records. It was time for a break, and especially for my brother, because he had always felt that uh, he wanted to spread his wings, so to speak. He was felt too confined, and understandably so, with us always being thought of uh, together, like as a horn section. So he went off on his own, started his own solo career, and it was good for me, too, because I started to do some solo records, and I took his place in 1982 with uh, Jocko Pistorius. So it was good for me. I got to play with Jocko for until, uh, sadly, he uh, passed uh, all those years. And uh, it was a good... Uh, we, we never intended it to be a 10 years. It was about 10 years, maybe 11 years. But we both got busy on our own. Uh, it felt good to just... We, we had the club, so we would play at the club occasionally. We did play... Sometimes we just didn't really record as the Brecker Brothers until uh, '92. The club will closed in '87. A lot of stuff happened. Uh, Mike was married, two kids, you know, and uh, I was married, divorced, or single, crazy, out on my own. We were leading different lives, uh, but uh, in '92, I think we were ready to kind of restart. The, the all the pieces kind of fell into place. Uh, GRP was around, uh, and we were both uh, signed to the same label. We were both playing with a lot of the same people, so it, uh, just all the pieces fell into place. To let's give this another shot. So we, uh, 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 and uh, it was about ten years had passed. So it was kind of a ten-year anniversary of our, uh, of our uh, spreading our wings, so to speak. So, lo and behold, we went back in the studio with some new guys, great guys, George Whitty on keyboards and, uh, and as kind of co-producer, uh, technology had, had advanced. He was really up with the technology, as was a guy named Max Risenhoover, who was also in the studio programming stuff, James Genus on bass. Uh, Sanborn came in for a tune. And we had a lot of fun putting that one together. Uh, and I don't think there was, uh, we produced it pretty much on our own once again, as I remember. I'm going to have to relive some of these records. Yeah, you guys are listed as just the producers. Yeah, so we, we kind of knew what we were doing, but we were, luckily we had some of the technology guys. That was really the thing about that record. We On there and George, particularly who I still work with, whose birthday happens to be today, I just recorded something for him in our home studio this week. We still play together and uh, do a lot of projects together. He's doing great, I'm happy to say. And he was really responsible for producing a lot of Mike's solo records along with Don Grolnick and really helping me on a lot of my projects, solo projects to this day. You not only made the change with technology, I mean, almost seamlessly, because it was a very strong record that just really picked up where you guys had left off. But also, the CD era, it was a very long run time. Oh, yeah. You had been doing. Yeah, well, I happened to be in, 
in Japan with Jocko, and we went to Phillips. I forget what year this is. I'll have to look it up. It was late, uh, mid to late 80s. Myself, Peter Erskine, and Jocko went to the Phillips factory, and they, hold, they held up this piece of technology. This is a CD, they said. And we went, you know, it's this big. We said, wow, you know, they, I have a picture of me holding it. And with Ersko Man and, and Jocko, we saw the first manufactured CDs, whatever year that was. And it was this CD age. And uh, we took advantage of it as much as we could. There was a long spillover, you know. Uh, for us slower-minded musicians, I remember, forget which record this was. I, I think it was one of my one of my only real jazz records called uh, In the Idiom, which was... Uh, for a CD company, Denon. And I was really nervous about not being able to put out a record, so to speak, an LP. But uh, technology caught up with all of us, and uh, that was the CD age. Look backing on it, looking back on it, it was a good age. At least there was only one technology to release the stuff. Now, it could be anything. <laughs> so, yeah, and then a couple of years later, it came with Out of the Loop. Which a uh, very strong record got a couple of Grammys. Yeah, we were happy with that one too. And I think you know Mike's growth as a composer really helped both of those records. So it wasn't all more dependent on me. And it also grew a lot uh, as a uh, you know as a player, producer, just all around musician. I mean, it was a, the Ewe, the advent of his playing the Ewe. He was just so far ahead of everyone, including me. I am the first one to admit it. But it was just, uh, I would watch in awe to, to go over to his house and see how he thought of stuff. He made it all sound so easy. So it was a, it was really a great journey together we had. I miss him so much. But, uh, you know, at least we have, I have his music and I have, can look at him all the time on YouTube and just uh, always uh, revel in his uh, artistry. Absolutely. Um did, did you have any indication that he was ill at all? Uh, it, when did you first become aware of that? Or did he well, become... he passed away, if I'm not wrong, 13 years ago. And I'll never forget when I first found out that there was something wrong. We were supposed to leave on a Monday and go to Russia, where I had been going for several years playing with a guy who's become a great friend and is a great musician, Igor Butman. Traveling over to Russia, uh, Igor is very famous over there, and he had a lovely club. I would go fly and play there uh, several times, uh, and uh, uh, Igor finally got the chance to have Mike come with me. Brecker Brothers Band was going to play, and Igor's was called the club, Igor's club. We were leaving on a Monday. We were going to play the whole week. And I got a call on Friday by, uh, from Mike saying, listen, man, I can't go. Something's the matter with my back. And he had just come back from the Mount Fuji Jazz Festival, I think, with Steps, which was a Steps reunion. And I said, Mike, uh, look, just get on the plane. We'll figure it out when you get there, you know. And he said, no, this time I really, there's something really wrong. So he didn't go. So that was whatever year that was. It was about two or three years before he passed away. He got undiagnosed. They, he actually had a broken vertebrae. That was the first symptom that was myelodysplasia, MDS. He got misdiagnosed for several months. Uh, 
and it was uh, a long, tragic, slow decline of during which he was just so brave to face all this stuff. Came back, played a couple times, somehow managed to do that last fucking record, which I think is the best record he ever did. How he ever pulled that off, I'll never know, being as sick as he was, called Pilgrimage, where he actually wrote the whole record. So it's uh, a tragic, but looking back on it, uh, I'm just so proud of the guy. What can I say? Yeah. Um, a hallmark of, of, of Michael and yourself has been experimenting with sounds. You know, a lot of electric sounds and different kinds of unusual instruments. How did you get inspired to try those kinds of things out? Well, that goes back to uh, dreams. 1969, 1970. This has a good story attached to it, too. Uh, we had John Abercrombie in the band. And, the you know, I had played with a lot of jazz groups, but I had started out in Blood, Sweat, and Tears, where there were the horn section. We could never hear ourselves. They were so loud. I remember playing with Buddy Miles and that band he had uh, – at the Cafe of Go-Go. I was thrilled to play with him, but it was so loud, I couldn't hear tell what notes I was even playing. And, and that was generally the case. You could barely hear yourself. All the rhythm section had big amps. Eventually, Condor came up with a thing called a, a, a Hammond, I'm, I'm sorry, Hammond uh, technology, Hammond organ technology, came up with a thing called a Condor. It had kind of gurgly... We, first of all, we bought pickups. Marcus Burry pickups came out where you could attach an electrifier horn, just the the amplification of your horn, so to speak. Uh, play louder through the sound system directly instead of going into a mic where you needed the monitors. Uh, but at the time, we had John Abercrombie in Dreams, who was a wonderful jazz guitarist and creative guy and... Uh, always felt that to be a rock guitarist, he needed a wah-wah pedal. So on every tune, he had a wah-wah pedal. And one rehearsal, he didn't show up, but the pedal was sitting there. And we had quarter-inch jacks for our condors, which, like I said, you would press these uh, draw bars and it would have like kind of an order. They were all terrible effects, underwater sound, like or some kind of reverb. Not good effects, but I plugged in the wah-wah uh, between myself, the condor, and the amp, and man, the wah-wah sounded great on trumpet. I'm going, wow, man, this is great. And it was all due to the fact that Abercrombie uh, left his pedal there and didn't make the rehearsal. And we were playing a lot at the village gate, and Miles would come down and hear us. He'd never talk to us, but he'd sit in the back. Where uh, Village gate was a big club on Bleecker Street. Everybody, you could hear, Miles is here, Miles is here. And you could see him back. He always sat on the same spot. And I had my wah-wah. Mike, I don't think, was electrified. They just had the condors yet. Uh, eventually, Mike tried it on his saxophone. It didn't quite work on his saxes, the actual crybaby wah-wah, as did some other things. Uh, but for years after that, I was chided, after Miles started using a wah-wah, I'd run into his road manager, uh, late great Jim Rose was the same, and he'd always kind of chide me saying, hey, you know, it's that wah wah, you're just trying to sound like Miles. And I'd recount him the story, just like I told you, it was Miles shortly after that went in and did Bitches Brew. 
Billy Cobham was in Dreams, and he used Billy on, uh, also used Billy on Bitches Brew, although at the time Billy didn't get credit. And I would explain to Jim, you know, it's no big deal, but uh, in jazz history, but I was actually using the Wawa and Miles would come and hear us. And cut to several years later, we had the club, 7th Avenue South, and I found myself standing next to Miles one night. I had never really met him, so I held out my hand. He was standing right in front of me and said, hey, uh, I'm Randy Brecker. I said something stupid. I'm a big fan or whatever. Uh, the one who just wanted to meet you, and he just didn't say anything. He just stared at me. He had shades on, and I said, okay, thanks, and uh, went downstairs where the bar was, started having a couple drinks. And about an hour later, I heard a little whisper in my ear, and I hear, I love my Wawa. You love your Wawa. And he split. That's <laughs> the first thing he ever said to me. And then he started coming back to the club a lot. But that's what started the whole, between all of us, the whole electric thing. It was mainly so we could hear each other and hear ourselves as a horn section, but a lot of the effects, uh, some work better on trumpet, some work better on saxophone. Mike started using a uh, cry, no, not a cry, baby, a funk machine. That was like an automatic, that sounded great on tenor. And, uh, and we enjoyed just utilizing other sounds would lead us uh, into other directions uh, improvisationally, you know, just working with the sound. I had a thing called an echoplex, too. I could play with one hand and kind of do, like, uh, bend notes, you know, and, and between that and the wah I got some good sounds out of it. Now, of course, everything is digital. But I still, uh, in certain situations, like to use effects, mainly to hear myself, but to also cut through uh, some live situations where there's loud guitars. When I play with Mike Stern or Billy Cobham or things like that, it just kind of assists me. Well, it's not just the virtuosity of you and Michael, but I think, you know, those colors and unique uh, uh, flavors that you added just, you know, are part of that whole Brecker Brothers magic and, and picture. Yeah, it just was kind of there, you know. It's not like we uh, had a brilliant idea, you know. It's just circumstances. It's wild how these things unfolded. I was just a Wawa sitting there. It's uh, wild how these things unfold, and uh, people think, oh, so brilliant. But it was just kind of happenstance, though, everything. I mean, we could deliver when we had to deliver, I'll say that, right. you know. But uh, but we were there, you know, when a lot was happening. It was just fascinating. And you came back uh, just a few years ago. I did a tribute album to Michael. Uh, yeah. Reunited some of the guys. Yeah. Uh, that must have been quite an experience. Oh, yeah, it was. And like I, I mentioned earlier, we still, with a, with the core of those guys, still go out. Or like Kind of save it. We don't want to do it too often, but it's a lot of fun. We did the jazz cruise uh, uh, last year. We just came back from Camden where we played a nice gig outside with uh, Barry Finnerty. Uh, I'm trying to think who was on this gig. A young bass player named Alex Claffey from Philly, who was the only guy that hadn't been with the band. You, Will and uh, uh, Neil usually do the gig, but they were busy. George Whitty on keyboards. My lovely wife, who you met earlier, Otto Ravati, is a wonderful saxophonist in her own right. And to uh, make an addendum to the uh, story in Russia, you know, Mike didn't go to the gig with Igor, but we still went. 
when we first found out that he was sick and Ada happened to be with me just to go to Russia. So she filled in for Mike with our regular Brecker Brothers band was great at the time. I think we had Victor Bailey, Rodney Holmes, who just played this gig. I'm still playing with all these years. And we played a week at Igor Bootman's club, Otto playing saxophone. She sounded nothing like Mike, but really held her own. She has her own thing going. And that kind of, after Mike got sick and could no longer play and sadly passed away, I always had in the back of my mind to, you know, it sounds like the Blues Brothers, but for special occasions, I think it's part of my legacy and Mike's to play that music again. So we still do it. And Otta sounds great. She has some effects. She doesn't try to sound like Mike. And uh, she has a special place in my heart like Mike does and uh, did and does. So it's a special thing to play with her. And uh, it's, it's great that uh, we can do this every now and then. It is fantastic. On, on this record, though, the reunion record, uh, I felt like there's still some departures from what you had done before, a little more blues in places. Um, and uh, you had that great tribute song to Mike. Um, and even like a, a smidgen of hip hop, I thought. Well, you got to go with, you know, the times it all rubs off. So, so we're trying to still keep it current, so to speak. And, uh, just bounce things off each other. Uh, and it was a lot of fun to do that record, but technology had caught up. Sometimes we'd send the files to someone, you know, we, uh, it's harder to get everyone together. But, uh, and that's in a way, sadly, uh, uh, how a lot of records are done now. So you just kind of have to go with the technology. But that was a lot of fun to do. It's a, it holds a special place in my heart that we could not only dedicate it to Mike, but all these other guys that have sadly passed on. There's too many of them. Grolnick, of course, Luther and Barry Rogers, all these close friends of mine that uh, are sadly missed. Absolutely. So it was a, a nice thing for us to do. We were really happy with it. And who is Randroid? Well, that's another whole long story. And I, it, it, as I get older, it's hard, harder to pull them off. But let's see. Well, number one, I always wrote lyrics to a lot of my tunes. And I got that idea from Horace Silver, who wrote lyrics to all of his tunes. And we'd be in a car and Horace would be writing down ideas. And once I got my... I So that was the germ of writing lyrics. Even to tunes that... Uh, lyrics you've never heard from the first Brecker Brothers record. It's a tune called Rocks on there. I wrote lyrics to the intro. There's a lot of them people haven't heard. But I was doing a gig in Japan years ago uh, with a, a Coltrane tribute band. Gary Bartz was in the band. I always tell the story. It's how the name came up. And he'd come over to me early in the night and say, Randroid, are you in there yet? And they'd look me in the eyes and say, no, nah, you ain't there yet. I'll come back and talk to you later. Then a couple hours later, after we'd all have a couple of drinks, kind of at the end of the night when it was hangout time, say, Randroid, okay, you're in there. Let's go hang out. So I kind of kept the name and made up a fictional character. There's a record called, uh, I'll probably have to send it to you. I haven't heard it. Uh, when the technology became available that I could actually sing and and buffer up the vocals, I did a record called Hanging in the City and uh, with George Woody. 
and my brother played on it. All a lot of guys from the band. It was close to a Brecker Brothers record, but I introduced Randroid on that thing. I sang four or five tunes that I had been writing lyrics for. It's actually pretty inventive, I have to say. Hiram played on it. Mike, Richard Bona, George programmed all the drumming. Uh, it's called Hanging in the City, Songs of Rhyme, Reason, Romance, and Raunch by Randroid. And uh, I got a little mileage out of that, I must say, because I could kind of carry it off live, some of the tunes. We did some tours with that uh, alter ego in person. I'd put on sunglasses and do a rap, and, you know, it was fun. <laughs> so he's still in there, but it's getting harder to do at age 73. It's a little harder to pull it off. Well, so glad that you're still able to do what you do. I mean, take good care of yourself. Thank you so much. Help. I'll um, try. Two quick more questions. Hopefully they're quick. But, um, okay. What is your single most unforgettable memory from the road? Oh, man, I don't know. That's a good question, but I don't know if I have one the, the overall thing is just waiting for the gig you know i mean i don't know if i have one memory but what you do as a musician the other 22 hours of the day uh you're asleep some of the time but you just live to play that gig and uh and the two hours of absolute pleasure to play live music for people never leaves you uh Okay, I'll just, I don't know, this one just, there's a lot of stories, but one comes to mind, the things that happened. I was playing at uh, somewhere in Italy. Italy, a lot of screwy things happen. It's a great place to eat, and my wife's Italian, so she can vouch for me, but sometimes you know, it's the way the money is doled out. Some always things are kind of last minute. Big concert, and... Uh, thousands of people out there, and we're on stage. I'm counting off the tune, and as I'm counting off the tune, the promoter, this young lady, comes over to me and whispers in my ear, they don't have the money. Uh, what was I said, thanks for telling me now. Okay, so we did the concert, and I got my tough guy image up after the concert, and I kind of, there was an office, and I kind of burst in the door to demand my money and there were four or five guys sitting in there uh each with a neck you know out to here immediately i knew i better just walk back out the door we eventually got the money but uh you know crazy things happen all the time uh just last week and then i'll shut up i was playing in in russia and uh uh Hadn't really warmed up because I was told that uh, the big band I was playing with was going to play five tunes before uh, I came up. So I kind of was in a tent backstage, was outside, and I was going to warm up after they started. And I'm um, sitting back there, I'm about 100, maybe 200 feet from the stage, and I hear them announcing me in the audience going yeah yeah and i still thought the people around me said no that's a mistake don't worry they're going to play first so i sat there for a while maybe 10 minutes and then it was clapping like this and then there was silence and i started saying you know something is screwed up here i better get up there so i grabbed the horn no warm-up you have to warm up before you play ran out it was 100 150 feet up this long thing <laughs> Sure enough, I'm supposed to be out there. This is all on TV, cameras. 
I don't know what the people were thinking. I just counted off the band. I went, oh, <laughs> and played. It was hard because no warm-up, you know, play a lot of big band stuff. But that was just last week. That's, so that one comes to mind. <laughs> what do you think's the biggest crowd you ever played before? Well, the biggest one that I remember, because I have photos, and back in the uh, 70s and, and early 80s, when we went to Japan, we would play baseball stadiums with the Oryx Jazz Festival. So there might have been 50,000 people out there. Yeah, there's some videos of that with myself, Freddie Hubbard, George Duke, uh, my brother, Joe Henderson, Joe Farrell was the horn section, Peter Erskine, like I said, George Duke, Alfonso Johnson, Robin Ford. We were Fusion Band D. It was the thousands of guys on this festival. Benny Goodman, you know, from all periods of jazz. And, and you'd play for literally a baseball stadium full of people. That doesn't really happen anymore. Yeah, well. As you look back, Randy, on all this amazing music that you've done and all the people you've worked with, what would you say you're most proud of accomplishing? I would say overall, just to be able to still play the trumpet, I still love to play it. I have to put a lot of time and practice every every day still, maybe more than, uh, than I used to when I was younger where I could just kind of blunder through everything. But if there's one thing, I think I, I always go back to those nine tunes on the first Brecker Brothers record because that started, it instigated so much. I had no idea. You know, I just was writing, was hoping to get a record deal, sell 5,000 records. And uh, it, it so much happened as a result of, of those tunes as far as Brecker Brothers and jump-starting our, our careers. It was just fascinating. So if, I, I think if there was one moment or one thing it was that that year where i wrote this stuff and where that whole those pieces all fell into place thank you clive davis <laughs> and all the great guys in the band all my good friends it was just uh just all the pl right places were in peace all the right pieces were in place one of the two yeah yes <laughs> starting to blurble here awesome hey um how can folks keep up with, you know, where you're playing and keep track of you? Well, thank you for that. Well, just go to my website, Randy at randybrecker.com. Uh, I've got a recent record out, which uh, it did really well with the NDR big band doing tunes of mine from different periods, featuring my wife, Ada Wolfie Hafner, a great German drummer called Rocks. And recently, and this will be out in a couple months, we recorded 10 of my wife's wonderful tunes with a great core rhythm section. It's called Brecker Plays Rovati. It'll be out October 26, I think. Uh, Brecker Plays Rovati, Sacred Bond. Our 10-year-old daughter sings a little on it. Stella, great band with Jim Beard, uh, Dave Kukoski, Alex Claffey, young guy, like I mentioned, on bass. Rodney Holmes from Brecker Brothers on drums and uh, uh, Adam Rogers on guitar cafe on percussion really one of the best things i've been associated with she's writing great it was great for me just to kind of co-produce with her and in introduce her great uh writing to the public so please check it out definitely thank you for that tip is there anyone related to you that's not musical that's yeah, a good question no, that's music kind of runs through the family my other daughter amanda has four CDs out under her own name, Amanda Brecker, and uh, Severius Cousins, uh, who are doctors and lawyers, but they all 
all my sister's kids all started out as and still play music and she does she's a wonderful harpist so that's our big connection here i'm glad i have it in my life what can i say well we're glad to have you in our lives randy thank you so much for all you've done musically and for taking time to do this interview okay well thanks for having me it was a lot of fun great take good care okay bye everybody Hey, back at Truth and Rhythm headquarters. Thank you for joining us on another magical ride with Truth and Rhythm. Whether you're watching or listening, as always, thank you so much for your continued interest and support. Be sure to subscribe. Go to YouTube. Go to the Funkin' Stuff channel. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives and breathes and thrives. Also, goodies here like TIR Quick Takes. And if you subscribe, you know what? You get the show before anyone else. It's free. If you love jazz, funk, R&B, soul, you can't miss it. Pass it along. Tell a friend. Tell family. This audience is growing, and it is a beautiful thing, all coming together for the love of this great music. Also, if you can throw us a buck or two, we could use the support financially, keeping the lights on, keeping the servers going, all these expenses. If you can help support the program, whatever you can give, much appreciated. Go to the FunkinStuff.net website. And on the right-hand side of every page, you just click and you can donate through PayPal, credit card, whatever. Very easy to do and so much appreciated. And if you do a sizable donation, I will mention you on the program. Also, drop me a line. Email me at ScottG at FunkinStuff.net. Let me know who else you'd like to see on the show, what you enjoy about the music. Let's just kibitz and uh, talk about stuff, you know, talk music. You'll find that I respond very quickly, and I much enjoy the uh, rapport and the camaraderie and the interaction. Always remember, this is your show, The True Music Lover. So for now, that's all the time we have for this one. It's a wrap. As always, Scott Dr. GX Goldfine saying, keep on vibrating to the rhythm of the one. <laughs>